Welcome to the increasingly inaccurately titled Weekly Squeak and another experimentation with microphone placements. I don't know if this is going to be less echoey, more echoey or what. The uh, the uh, background noise has decreased outside our uh, studio as um, the builders who have been there for two months are leaving At today. At three, I think. Yes. They are leaving today. Yes, they are. It's a day of celebration here in Berlin. Well, just outside our house. But <laughs> yeah, they've actually been working on the plumbing under the roads. In this episode, we're going to have one discussion topic and then we're going to wrap up with what we have been up to and what we're up to over the next few weeks. And the discussion topic is a little specific to some of the things that we interact with, i.e., how to write about, how to explain, how to present a technical concept and what you do, be this a company or a project, and some advice on dealing with the press. I tend to do more technical writing, documentation, technical blogs, explaining, coding, DevOps, processes like that to largely other technical people but also non-technical people. And Kate, you do a slightly different aspect of technical writing. I do. I basically am a tech journalist. So my job is I write about new products, I write about industry issues, I write about the utilisation of technology in different sectors and a little bit of everything in between. I also do a little bit of um, blogging for some startups as well. So what we wanted to talk about was uh, a couple of miscellaneous bits and pieces of advice um, for people, I guess, people wanting to do some of the same, but also, especially from Kate's perspective, people who want to communicate with people who do some of the work we do. Uh, And Kate, especially, you've had this idea for quite a while and you had a little test run uh, doing a spontaneous presentation at a tech open air side event here in Berlin, which I think went okay. Yeah, I did. I was basically at Tech Open Air, which is a annual conference here in Berlin, which features a wide range of eclectic speakers and presenters and issues that kind of go across both music and technology. The music side of it, I didn't see all that much, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I was in the media room doing some work working on an article, basically, like you do, and someone came rushing in looking very, very stressed, saying, is there anyone who can help us? We've got an event on tonight and our media person, as in the journalist that organised, can't make it. They're they're really sick. Is there anyone that could help? And, you know, I'm a nice person, so I said, yeah, look, I might be able to help you. Why don't you tell me what what you're um, after? And basically the event was a, a B2B startup kind of event with a bit of a pitching competition. Um, the aim of that wasn't like let's pitch and win a prize. It was more an information sharing and an opportunity for people to interact. There was a number of VCs in the room as well as people that worked in the sector, people that wanted to work in the sector and a little bit in between. And so, you know, they were like, can you come along and talk a little bit about um, how startups can get media coverage um, bear in mind, my media coverage is, experience is limited to web print as opposed to being on the television or indeed radio 
um, directly, or other types of um, of press. You know, I guess things like um, podcasts and um, YouTube um, interviews and things like that are becoming more prominent. But you know, it was a good opportunity to talk to a Rome about um, a topic that I've become, you know, I guess a little bit opinionated about. And it's something we, I think we've mentioned it on previous episodes, this aspect of um, especially technical startups, not always though, not limited to, explaining better what it is they actually do and why. Um, And it's been something you've been uh, thinking about and maybe doing some presentations on at things like Slush and uh, events like that. And it was a good opportunity to give the idea a test run. So um, I thought maybe as a second test run, you could share some of your advice with our listeners. I could do that. I mean, another thing we may be good for us to do, Chris, is to actually get some startups to maybe call in the show and um, and talk to them about call some of them. Call in on the telephone. Well, maybe <laughs> they could they could talk to us on Slack channel or something, and um, you know maybe give some strategies or talk to them about either what's worked really well for them or things that have not worked well. Well, a future episode, maybe, unless yeah. uh, Chris from the future manages to stitch some things in, which is highly unlikely because we haven't arranged any interviews. But maybe a future episode. Yeah, certainly not now, but this is kind of, you know. Well, now, we've got about five startups just waiting over there. Um, Hear the silence, yes. Yeah, they're, they're next to the cat sleeping on the couch. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm happy to kind of give a few sort of little tips to people, bearing in mind that every startup is different, their audience is different, their product is different. Um, And the nature of what they do is a sheer diversity from everything from where you're located to who's in your team can mean that you've got either a wealth of experience in this area or you might have not too much at all. And so I guess some of these tips are really targeting um, people in startups that are actually maybe just starting out and they haven't yet got uh, a big media team or, you know, a PR team in their their little... um, Organisation. So I guess the first thing I, I would say to people is to really hone down on what your product is and does um, and be able to explain that to people, particularly people that may not be in your sector. I talk to people in, you know, across things like robotics, SaaS, um, I don't know, different IoT, whether it's industrial, home automation or products that, you know, like wearables. And each of those has a very different audience and therefore it has a different area of knowledge. And it's very easy for someone who's in a tech bubble to assume that everyone knows about their, the intricacies of what they do and why, and it's simply not the case. You'll find most journalists specialise in certain areas, but they're also more likely to know a little bit about lots of things rather than, you know, deep, deep um, integrated knowledge about the specificity of what you're talking about. So that's the first thing I'd say to people. Just be able to explain your ideas and your product very clearly and simply. If you like, like a soundbite or a paragraph, a quote, an elevator pitch, any of these ideas is a really good start to it. The second thing I'd say to people is think about what journalists and writers and bloggers and v-bloggers and all these sort of people are looking for and why and how you can cater to that. For example, one thing I find a lot of people get wrong is they're very uh, scattergun approach in really contacting the media. 
For example, I get lots of, lots of um, press releases about things that have no bearing at all on what I write about. And it's, you know, so I'd be saying to start off, make a list, think about who writes about your area. Go through, you know, the, the publications, go through the, the websites, what have you. Make a list, make a list of people's names. You can contact them in different ways, whether it's Twitter, it's um, LinkedIn, it's through their website, what have you. We're usually pretty receptive to, to being contacted. But, you know, be specific, be clear on what you're actually um, thinking that you could provide for them. The second thing I'd say is, um, or the third thing, I think I'm on the third thing, is to think about uh, what kinds of things do they need to be able to write about you. For example, they need to know lots of information that will build a story. So you need a hook. So you might have the most interesting IoT platform in the world and you think it's fascinating, but if you come to me and you say, well, I can't tell you about any of my customers because we're all under a secrecy um, you know, obligation or what have you, well, that's not very helpful. It doesn't make you sound very interesting. You're not giving me any practical examples I can deal with. But if you came to me and said, oh, yes, you know, Actility actually powers the Netherlands and part of that work is actually the rat control platforms that are now automated through sensors across the city. So of um, Amsterdam, for example, you know. So the- robots with guns shooting at rats. Not quite. It's more like... Oh, I'm disappointed. Uh, yeah, sadly, sadly, sadly. But it's, it's more basically... So all the rat traps are automated with a sensor so that people can tell when they're being used successfully and thus go and dispose of the rats, to be blunt. So, yeah, that's a bit more interesting than just, oh, yes, we have a platform that everyone else has in different parts of the world. Not so interesting. That's one example. I mean, what are your thoughts, Chris? You work at a startup. What are some of the challenges you face? Uh, I think... Actually, on the flip side of uh, what you said is uh, it's actually being able to explain what you do. Um, it sounds like a surprisingly easy thing to do, but sometimes it isn't because often you start by solving your own problem and you know what the problem is and then trying to figure out how to explain that problem to other people is sometimes hard. But I think I would also say that maybe if you have a problem that you find hard to explain in a, in, a, in a nutshell, as it were, then maybe you don't have a problem that's worth solving. <laughs> that might be mm. a controversial statement, but if you really find it that hard to explain something, then you either, A, don't actually have something that is that big a problem, or the other problem, and I'm not really entirely sure of what the exact cause of this may be, is when someone is asked, and I see this a lot, especially from more academic people, um, to explain an idea or a concept in two minutes. They say, oh, that's not enough time. And I kind of feel like if you can't explain something you're interested in or are working on in a short period of time, then your idea either isn't clear enough or maybe you actually aren't as passionate about it as you think. Um, yeah, that, that's maybe some observations based on where people I have worked with but also startups I've seen pitching. Um, and I saw an interesting... This was a sort of unrelated event last night, but a quote that the presenter gave, which I found quite interesting... Uh, and a lot of startups these days are very guilty of this, 
is that uh, technology will not save the world. It's actually people who save and change the world. So I think we're all a bit tired of hearing, we are inventing a platform that's going to change the world. Well, probably actually not, because it's probably just making your washing easier or something like that that really isn't going to change the world, to be blunt. Um, or actually, it's not your platform that's going to change the world. It's people using it. It's you mm. pushing it effectively, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think another piece of advice would be don't bullshit. Mm. Um, people can see bullshit. People can smell bullshit. Um, and... There's, if you have a sufficiently good enough idea, then you don't really need to do that anyway. I think the thing to be aware of here also is that, really, if you're a startup or any kind of business, you should be used to talking about your ideas, whether it's verbally or in writing. You should be doing business plans, for example. You should be doing pitch decks or... Um, is it, is that, are they called pitch decks? Yeah. Yeah, I get sent a lot of those. Um, or other means of being able to explain your idea. You should have an about, about page. You should have a, um, you know, a paragraph on your Facebook uh, about that says what you do if you have a, a Facebook page. Things like that should be part of the course. And if you can't, find someone who can. Find a marketing person, find a writer, etc., etc. And don't leave that too late. Uh, especially with technical companies, you tend to start initially with engineering and just focus on making a good technical product and then suddenly a year later realise you need salespeople and marketing people. And you think you don't, but actually if you want to get a technical product into people's homes, computers, offices, whatever, then you actually do need people who can also explain what you do. Don't demean what they do. It actually is an important stage. Yeah, whether you're a software or a hardware company, it's integral that people are able to engage with your product and to be able to tell other people about it as well. Don't, don't underestimate the power of word of mouth. and Don't underestimate the power of words, generally. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, you know, even if you're doing something as a company that is very B2B, it's hard to promote, it's a niche, it's not something the general populace would utilise, but you want to get some kind of community around it there are always ways to get people talking about your product that are a little bit different it's things like you could be a sponsoring events or meetup or community events conferences it's even really obvious things like the number of times I go to a tech event that has stalls and I walk past most of the stalls and I have no idea what they do yeah yeah this is actually I mean this relates to what you've been saying but this is the same messages apply to banners, posters, flyers, even the setup of a stall. It actually is not that hard or expensive to get a decent banner or a decent table demo that shows what you're doing. And we both have walked past many booths and you just, in a glimpse, you know, most people will glimpse for about 30 seconds, mm. if that, and if they can't tell what you're doing. And how many stalls have you been past where there's just a person sat at a desk staring at a computer screen. Constantly. And you're like, why are you here? What are you doing? And what a waste of time you being here because not only do I not know what you do, it doesn't even look like you want to be here. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And I think the other thing people say about this kind of stuff is, oh, but it's very expensive. And it's like, well, it doesn't have to be. Don't you... do it. Or justify the expense. That's the yeah, you, it's an investment in your, pro- in your product. I mean... You want if you're selling something, whether whoever it's to, you want people to buy it. Surely, you should have a clearly articulated audience. 
whether it's um, you know, a better B or a better C. And you should be very clear on how are you going to engage those people. I think, I think um, maybe topics of running booths could be a whole other discussion. Yeah. But um, in general, it's about clarity. It's about explaining your idea. It's about condensing your idea into... I mean, we sometimes also hate uh, sound bites, but uh, when you're competing for people's attentions, then that is what you need to reel them in, and then you can go deeper. And that is okay. It's okay to have a 30-second explanation. Absolutely. And if someone is interested, then you can go into the 10-minute, 30-minute, 10-hour explanation Absolutely. afterwards if they're interested. Yeah. But if no one is going to stand there and listen to a 10-minute explanation... And I have done that at Booth and I've, I haven't understood. I've asked a question and within about two minutes I've understood it's something I'm not interested mm. in. And you find a very subtle and pleasant way of, of uh, extracting yourself from the conversation. Yeah, and, and one thing I'd add to this is we're not only talking about going and talking to people in person, but even things like press releases. If you're saying, you know, you're the only person that does something, your product is better than everyone else's, um, you're disrupting a whole industry or transforming it, these kind of words people love to use. It's almost like a bingo game, really. You need to be able to back that up because if I'm going to write about you or whoever's going to write about you, we do research. We do, we do Google people. We look up the competitors. And if you should be able to say what makes you different but not just say, oh, no one else is doing this. No one else does this. Because the number of times someone says to me, no one else is doing this, and then I look them up, you know, or I look up the topic, whether it's autonomous car, something or other, or what have, or some type of robot or whatever it is. And there's 20 other people doing the same thing in the same country. Yeah. You could say we're the only person in this place. That's fine. We're the only person on our street. <laughs> but just be honest. Like, we, we, we will, most writers will genuinely want to make a story and a good story. Yeah. And you need to be able to give us something we can work with. And this includes things that often people over, overlook. A really good press release will have a link or a, um, a Dropbox link or some downloads or what have you for good images, for example. Because if you don't have good images that you send to us, we're going to go and Google and, and probably get some crappy ones that we have to use because that's all we can find. Or we're going to go on Creative Commons and use something that probably doesn't relate to what you do. We rarely do use logos, by the way. People always send me their logo. Don't use it. We don't use it. Unless it's a recognisable logo already, of course. Then I know there's a couple of other things sort of as a follow-up mm. that you've mentioned. So things like um, bearing in mind that a writer isn't the gatekeeper of all content that goes onto a website. Not at all. And um, B, following up an article when, before it's been published but also after it's been published? I think you have some other insights. Yeah, on those I mean, scheduling is a big thing with, um, with press and you may think, oh, you know, everything is fly by the seat of the pants and, um, you know, it's going to hold the presses, there's a big story coming in. Generally, there's a backlog of stories and what the editor chooses to, to publish on a single day can vary for different reasons. It can be based on their commitments in time, having the time to edit. It could be based on the budget of the publication, of what stories cost more than others. It could be really just looking at what the trends have been and if they covered something already or something similar. And once you've done an interview, just, just bear in mind that the person who's interviewed you has got probably five, six, 
other stories on the go at the same time that they're writing. They've got to transcribe, they've got to edit, they've got to research, they've got to write the thing. They've got to find the images if they're not supplied. They've got to get it to the editor. Then the editor might sit on it for, you know, and days one other, or weeks. One other quick back step that I don't think you've mentioned yet, and this applies to me as well uh, on some of the things I do, is there are very few journalists these days who are on payroll. A lot of uh, writers are actually being paid per article. Yep. So, um, and these can be commissioned or based on people's interest in trends mm. in search and things like mm. that. So just bear that in mind that people are not always sitting there waiting just to write about anything. It's based on an article-by-article mm. basis. Um, and and one thing... in-between stuff isn't necessarily paid. So. Yeah, one thing I do like is I get a lot of press releases from PR people that say, hey, I know you write about this, I know this is one of your interest areas, I just want it, I know you wrote about, you know, I don't know, um, IoT sensors in agriculture on farms, have you thought about looking at indoor farming as well? Here's some examples that could be interest, of interest to you. That's purely an example, I've just made that up. Um, that kind of thing we like because it, it holds our interest. It's like, ah, we know what you're talking about. Or go with what's in the trends. Think about seasonal trends. Think about weather. Think about what time of year. For example, at the moment, I'm working on things for the Olympics, some articles on the Olympics. I've interviewed some athletes um, regarding their training and wearables and things like that. Previously, I did the World Cup. Um, sorry, Euro Cup. Whoops, wrong one. Euro Cup in, um, you know, football. Europe. <laughs> Soccer <laughs> in France. So, you know, you can always... What you should be doing with press releases or, you know... Your, your PR or your marketing or whatever, is even have a bit of a calendar over a, over a year. Think about when it's quiet and we might really want some stories. And I actually am pretty avert to being pitched at, you know, just throw me an idea and I'll help you work with it. You don't have to be, like, the slickest person of all. But if you can't explain it, help me out, you know. Give me some images, give me some diagrams, whatever you have that's, that's useful. You know, we will generally try and work with people if you, particularly if language is a barrier, we, we, we get this stuff, you know. And once the article has been published, uh, and I say this from the perspective of an editor on one website as well, and we have exactly the same setup, note that very frequently the writer actually has no access to um, change an article after it's been published. This may sound strange. So if there are changes and typos, um, which can happen even after something has been edited, everyone's human, everyone makes mistakes, that the writer themselves doesn't always have the power to actually be able to change them. That's right. And be aware, we're often working in different time zones. So if I've, if I've interviewed you in Spain about your product, your, I don't know, your software or whatever it is, and um, you want something changed straight away because there's a typo in someone's name or... You know, you don't like them that often it's that, oh, you've mentioned one of the companies we work with. We don't want to actually name them. That's quite a common one. Uh, well, firstly, you, you, it was in the quote, <laughs> so of course I mentioned it. It makes the story more human. Um, sure, I can change it, no problem, but I have to ask my editor. My editor is in San Fran, so I have to wait for him to wake up. Secondly, he's got to prioritise that in his day to, to fix it. And he may, he may be travelling, it could be anything, you know. So just, you know... Give us a little bit of space. We will fix things when we can. We're human. We make errors. We make typos. Things do get checked. Of course they get checked. But 
How many times have you ever written something yourself and you've gone over it once or twice and you come back a week later and there's this massive typo? And it's, it's funny because I was thinking about it yesterday. I wrote a, an article recently on um, automated cars and self-driving cars for people with quadriplegia, which is paralysis from the neck down. And I interviewed a designer who's actually an Indian guy based in Turkey at the moment about his design so that people with um, quadriplegia could gradually learn to drive a car and take over more of the functions of an automated car using brainwaves and facial recognition gestures and things like that. And it was all very, very, very interesting. And it was actually really lovely because last night I got an, I got an email from um, a guy with, with um, quadriplegia com complimenting me on the article, saying how much he enjoyed the topic. It gave him a lot of interest and hope and saying, you know, can I link to it? Of course you can. Oh, absolutely. You know, but it was just really nice to get some feedback that wasn't just, oh, you've got a typo there. Do you need do you need someone to you know do you want to hire someone to, to fix the typos or this something? This is the problem you often <laughs> don't hear from the silent majority. Yeah. Yeah, this is not this is not common to what we do. It's, no, I, I had an article similarly, and despite having done this for years, I still constantly get mixed up with its and its. Yeah, me too. And people love correcting on that stuff. Yeah, they do. I was very pleased with the article. I got lots of feedback offline. And really frustratingly, the only comment you see on the article yeah. is someone complaining about that. So this great article that had lots and lots of positive feedback that people spoke to me personally about, the only comment locked on the internet in it is someone complaining about a spelling typo, which is uh, disheartening. <laughs> and it's interesting in this... In this and I can't even change it. Well, that's right. Yeah, you have to go through this, all these machinations to change it. It's interesting in this vein because what... One thing I'm seeing, which I'm doing in more of my work, and I know probably most of people are now, is moving more content onto Medium as well. So whether that's a linked article, mm. it's a, a blog piece that's connected. I'm a little unconvinced by Medium, I must admit, but let's let's uh, maybe save that for another topic of discussion. Sure. I haven't found it to be as... Um, Broadening of your audiences, it tends to be yeah, people who already have big audiences elsewhere are using it to broaden an audience if you don't have one. I don't know. I'm unconvinced. But Yeah, um, one topic I might add to the discussion, just briefly, is should you have a blog? Um, or should you have a web... What, what do you mean? I mean, in... As it, a startup. Let me... Ah, okay. I'll explain. Okay. Explain. Like, the issue is, should you have a blog or should you even have a website? Website, Yes. Um, even a basic website, if you are fairly limited time, money, you haven't designed yet the way you want everything to look, even starting with a good Facebook page could be a start, you know. Okay, and in that case, something like Medium is more useful. Yeah, some, some, some means of communicating. And tell, I mean, remember, a lot of this stuff is about storytelling, mm. particularly when you're dealing with, you know, writers and stuff. We want to tell stories. Um, we want to know the impact your products had. Maybe you want to, we want to ask you about some of the challenges you had in making it. Yeah. Uh, we want to know about the people in the company. Some ways to generate interest. Like, I think a company I'll give that I was talking to someone about today, actually, that does a lot of this stuff quite well is Buffer, who some of you will know. They're yeah, I've actually got, and I've got some other more practical examples too. Companies like DigitalOcean, mm. CodeChip, who I write for. Mm. Uh, and Nextpack, who you've been doing some mm. work for, often um, these blogs can be used not 
only just as SEO. That's right. To bring uh, relevant traffic to your website and then they find out about the product mm. that you have, mm. but also help establish your brand as, oh God, this could sound horrible, establish your brand as a thought leader in the space. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. Shoot me now for saying yeah. that. But uh, you get the point. Um, yeah. And, and it, it helps. So, for example, with DigitalOcean, there are hundred hosting companies, but they are well known in the space because mm. lots of people end up on their website from searching for uh, solutions to server problems. Yeah. And then they say, yeah. oh, these people also have servers for me to rent and mm. they're also quite mm. good mm. anyway. And it's a very obvious correlation between how you've ended up there and then the product they have. And it's a fine line. I mean, when you're writing content for blogs for um, company websites... You have to be really quite. It's sometimes it's a bit of a battle of wills between wanting to, you know, write about topical issues and how much you actually want to name check or to refer to or allude to indeed the company that you're writing for. You don't want every paragraph to be, and this company, our company can solve this problem for you. I think that depends on the type. The types of blogs I'm talking about tend to be a little more disjoint, dis- disconnected from the mothership, as it were. Uh, and maybe the ones you're working on are more connected. I think that's an age thing as well. And if you've been around for a while, you've probably built up your readership and your audience, so you're able to do that a lot more. It is a good place to aim for, though. Maybe. I mean, with the software stuff especially, it's more about credibility. And if you have a good quality article that solves someone's problem, Mm. then that's actually enough. Mm. You don't have to mention the company because it's in the header anyway and people know where they are. Exactly. Yeah. So actually a good quality article on CodeShip or DigitalOcean, people go, hey, that was awesome. Thanks for the help. Who are these people? And actually you don't need, in fact, none of the blogs I do for, for CodeShip ever mention CodeShip. In mm. fact, sometimes I talk about things that have absolutely nothing to do with them, but it's still the quality content. And actually I will talk about one of them mm. in a minute, um, is, is, is encouraging to people. It gives you credibility and trust as a brand and sometimes you don't yeah. always have to talk about yeah. yourself if you if you provide a you know good resources you don't need to talk about yourself oh i agree absolutely but this is often the challenge like a new a young company will want that that name that name checking and that can be often the challenge for the writer in saying oh, yeah. well i don't think you need it as much as you think you do well, you're already on their website anyway yeah, so exactly if you're blogging on an external you know site maybe that's a whole other topic but let's wrap up this and we'll come back to our second uh, topic but we're going to try a slight restructuring and we're just going to briefly cover some of the things we've been working on the past few weeks and things that we will be working on okay so it has been a typically busy period I can't even remember the last time we put out an episode so Mm. I'll just say period Um, I personally am between jobs and I don't mean that in a I'm unemployed and I'm just trying to sound like I'm not way. I am actually between jobs. I am in the process of wrapping up some of my current work and moving on to a new company in September, uh, which I'm quite looking forward to. Um, I won't go into detail right now. Uh, in fact, over the, I'm basically taking August off. And half the reason I wanted to do this uh, episode is a little bit of a pricey to some things I'm going to be blogging about over the next few Uh, weeks about various things and some of these I'll touch on in the second segment but um, basically I'm kind of in a process of 
wrapping a few things up and a few new ideas and things like that. But so some of the things I've been working on, um, I actually did uh, a video for a company I have a lot of respect for, for uh, JetBrains, who make IDE software. And uh, it was just a first try with them. So I did something kind of simple. I made um, what's new video for them about the features and functionality in one of their IDEs app code, which uh, is a sort of alternative to Xcode. Um, and I was quite pleased with that. And they have some really nice tools for doing presentations, which you can see in the video, which are quite cool. There's actually a plugin for their IDEs that uh, shows what uh, keyboard shortcuts you're using and things like that. And it also had a really cool Apple script that maybe I'll see if I can uh, release into the wild that when you run it, resizes the window of the the IDE for the right for the video format and then starts QuickTime recording your screen, which was pretty cool. Um, for CodeChip, I also did an introduction to Docker for Mac, which timely, uh, Docker Engine 112 just came out uh, last week and the Docker for Mac and for Windows came out of beta and I've been having some real wranglings with Docker 112 in other work actually because we have uncovered a bug <laughs> which has been logged uh, and I won't go into great detail about what it was but it caused real problems for the particular company and their software that I was working with. Um, this post was a little quiet and then suddenly over the past like 12 hours I've had a ridiculous amount of retweets and likes on it. So Ooh. it seems to probably because I think it was mentioned by Docker because it came out of beta. Fantastic. Um, what else uh, on SitePoint? Uh, not necessarily written by me, but we have released uh, an article on Picasso from Square, which is an image loading library for Android. And I would actually encourage you to check out Square's uh, even if you can't use Square, I mean, we can't use Square here, but their engineering team actually has released a lot of really cool libraries, which you might find useful. In a similar vein, uh, this was an old article, but it got updated for Butterknife, which is for code injections for Android, tidying up the kind of rather verbose Java code you can sometimes get in Android. Uh, we also had an article on using the Microsoft Face API to create a face recognition app, which is kind of cool. Uh, an update on um, developing push notifications for iOS 10 when that comes out. And uh, I think the other quite cool ones I'd like to mention were writing a module for React Native um, so you can expose uh, native APIs in Android or, or iOS for React Native JavaScript programmers if you kind of have enough knowledge of JavaScript and or Objective-C Swift Java. And in a, th in, a, in a similar way, creating um, in-app browsers in PhoneGap. So actually making your own web browser inside an application, which sounds kind of weird, but it's sort of cool. Uh, that's basically what I've been up to, what's coming up. Um, I have relaunched my event section to a new Meet Me. So gregariusbamble.com slash Meet Me. Uh, I'm going to mention a couple of these because I don't exactly know when mm -hmm. the next episode will be. But in uh, just over a month, I will on September the 19th, I'll be at Write the Docs EU covering uh, learning from other technical writers, which is going to be talking about what I've learned from studying how people write uh, board game manuals, uh, IKEA manuals, <laughs> and things like that. 
Uh, and then I will be talking about Swift at Vox Days Belgrade on September the 29th. And Vox Days Belgrade was one of my favourite conferences of last year. So I'm hoping it will be just as much fun. So if you're either in Prague or Belgrade, you can come and say hi. Uh, and there are some other dates there, but further into the future. So I'll let you uh, look at the website to find out more. Kate, what have you been up to? Um, I've been doing a bit of writing, actually. Um, one big issue that's popped up in the media last week was the PetNet debacle. Now, in case you don't know, PetNet is one of many companies now producing automated pet feeders. And the premise of these is basically that you can feed your pet measured amounts of food from a little device and it has a range of different functionalities depending on which one you buy. For example, you can um, program the times it will be fed from your mobile phone. So it's whether it's the same time every day or what have you. Uh, you can... Depending on, again, which one, you can feed different food to different pets. You can measure how much they're actually eating by weighing the, the, the product in the bottom. Some of them have AI capabilities for facial recognition of the pets, so it enables you to work out which pet is eating what. And what's happened, what actually happened was PetNet is one of the kind of well-known ones in the States, and the server they used went down. So there was a significant system failure for... Depending on who you believe. I, personally, I, I mean, I haven't actually read your article, but I don't even understand why you'd need a server to do that. But, okay. um, <laughs> so it went down for somewhere between eight and ten hours. And what this meant was that people who were relying on the remote functionality, so the ability to remotely be able to... You could just do that device to device, though. I, um, I actually alluded to this in my article. Yeah. yeah, people that were, you know, on holidays, for example, who were relying on the um, device to feed their pets when they were away meant that they could not feed them. And PetNet has kind of added fuel to the fire by sending out a message to everyone saying, please make sure you've got manual feeding available until we fix this problem. Um, and I think I've linked to the actual, what they actually said in the article, so you can get the exact exact words. But, you know, of course the media fell all over this because all these hungry and thirsty puppies and kitties... Um, waiting for their food at home alone, you know, you can imagine the... Um, and this was caused by technology, and it wasn't just technology, it was the Internet of Things, which is even worse. Why are we automating everything? And it was just a, a PR nightmare for the company. And look, to be fair, they did do some things right. They um, apparently contacted everybody once it, once it was up, once it was fixed, to make sure that everything was working on, at their end, which I thought was quite good. They were sending out tweets from not only the company but their developers as well, giving people progress. But, I mean, it, it does lend the question about could there have been some better ways to do this? Because let's think about it. If you've got an automated product in your home, whatever it is, um, and bear in mind that in probably the next five years, most of our products will be automated in some way, shape or form or be connected to the internet in some way, shape or form. It's a bold statement. Yeah, but it's a true one. I mean, I talk to some people who have over 200 connected products in their homes. So, you know, depends where you live a little bit as well. I think you're talking to those sorts of people. Though. I am, I am. <laughs> so, you know, you would like to think that if you've got your pet feeder, um, if something goes wrong, for example, the internet goes down, the battery, there's a battery failure, there's something that happens. There's some way that the product can continue feeding on an automatic kind of feeder function um, without your input. Is that not reasonable to think that? How, if there's a power outage or whatever, 
you would like to think you that... Just, you just, I mean, you just store the details on the device. I don't really... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And you would like to think the device has its own means to do this, but, you know, the exact functionalities of why this actually happened... It's one of those sort of... Bit of, of a mystery. ...seemingly very obvious problems that... You don't notice until it is, of course, and then yeah. you're like, how did we never think of that? And the, the funny thing about it is everyone sort of could see why this was a problem and, you know, that they could have just made the actual device able to, to function without input when, you know, there's other failures happening or what have you. Um, and I even got an email from the company after my article <laughs> trying to backpedal a bit and say, oh, you know, we did fix all this and, you know, um, which was a little bit interesting. But I wanted to also mention something that I write every month, which is a lot of fun to write and... I'd encourage you to have a look. It's basically the um, Calm, Cruel and Connected Best and Worst IIT of the Month. And I do this every month. And what I do is I, I pick three great products I've seen that in the month that I think are, are quite good or have some capabilities that in the future will be very good and three that are not so good. So I, w- I won't go through every one because you can certainly go through the article for that. But I think my favourite um, worst one, because people always ask about the bad ones, is um, actually a device that um, is a bracelet that is worn either on the wrist or ankle by a child. It has a corresponding app. And what it does is actually provides a, if you like, an invisible leash for the child. So, so this if, is basically like a thing you use on criminals in the UK and the US. Yeah, yeah, it is actually. But for your child. You know, it's it basically if the child moves more than two hundred feet two hundred feet away, I think it is, um, the lets off an ear splitting alarm that the company assures you know people that it's not any louder than a smoke machine. And this was one of your hits. No. Okay. No. It was a miss. So can you you know can you imagine you're you're out in public, you're enjoying your day in the park, you've got your glass of wine and your newspaper or whatever. You probably don't and, have a child if you're doing that. But anyway. Precisely. And this is my point. Oh. And all you can hear is this screeching thing. And you know, I don't know when I was back in back in the day when I was a child, um, and my mother assured me this was quite common. A lot of people would use a leash. To, for their child, which is basically like a dog leash. Um, now they're kind of made to look a bit nicer. They put I them on. I had one too, actually. Yeah, they put them on a backpack, and the idea is that you know it's a safer way to manage children in public and so on. And the thing I also want to mention about this product is it's not only that it has this ridiculous way of like almost like an invisible fence for the child is it actually does has no GPS tracking. So if your child was missing, say in a crowd or whatever, um, it has no means for you to actually find the child. It's really... You just know they're more than 200 feet away. Yeah, it, it, you just know they're, they're, not, they're somewhere. And I think the funny thing that um, amuses me about it as well is that um, the, the idea that the technology impacts on other people is really not considered to be a problem, which it does. Um, another article I've been working on is about um, a product that should have been good but is just a bit of a letdown, really. Um, can you click on that one, Chris, so I can check the name of the product? Yeah, that one. Um, this is a little wearable product, and it's based on the idea of making yeah. people into... You have to change your author picture, I think. I like it. <laughs> it's got me holding a plastic chicken. <laughs> um, yeah. Of course. Now, this is a product called North Sense, and it's basically a little wearable that you wear via a piercing. So you have to go and get you know the piercing done in a piercing shop. So basically, it enables you to 
have the device functioning, and what it does is basically tell you when you're facing north. So it's like a compass, a wearable compass. Um, and it's, it's done by a biohacking company, and if you have a look on their website, I, I encourage you to have a quick look at the article. It's the most ridiculously hippie, dippy hippie, cyber, cyber hippie kind of website. You're cyber probably, hippie. Yeah, I, like I, I just made that up. It's the most <laughs> cyber hippie kind of article, you, 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 website you ever, ever would meet. It's got references to dancing and music and all this sort of crap. And, you know, it's... High fish pants? Oh, probably. Yeah, they probably wear those as well. But it's quite, it's quite ridiculous. And um, I think that there are so many things you can do with this technology. And it is so hard to get any type of wearables in, in the body, whether it's a piercing or what have you, um, because there are so many laws and regulations about, you know, body safety. And just because maybe we haven't been very clear, if you want to find any of these, if you go to readwrite.com slash author slash Kate with a C dash Lawrence with a W. Until the next time, until the next episode and instalment of the increasingly inaccurately titled Weekly Squeak, this is... Kate Lawrence. Okay. <laughs> what do you want me to say? How can people get in touch with you? Oh, okay. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to do it. LinkedIn. Okay. And Twitter, I think Twitter you're Twitter at Kate underscore Lawrence. Kate with a C. Lawrence with, with a, C, a W. Lawrence with a W. And this is Chris Ward, Chris Chinchilla, signing off. You can find me on at Chris Chinch. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me anywhere. Usually it's Chris Chinch or Chris Chinchilla. And we will talk to you all again next time. Take care.